Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our text for this evening is a portion of the Gospel lesson just read from St. Mark chapter 14. Reflection, contemplation, repentance. They are part and parcel of the Christian life, of course, but that's what the Lenten season is particularly focused upon. Never more so than now, as we draw closer to the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. His torment begins in earnest this night, the night in which he was betrayed. We, like the disciples, have gathered together to be with the Lord. But we gather not merely to share a Passover meal with him, but also to reflect upon his suffering, death, and resurrection, to contemplate our sinful contributions to the necessity of those things for our salvation, and to repent both of our sins and of our sinfulness. But it's not entirely a downer for us. We also get to reflect on the marvelous gift that he has given us in his body and his blood, the Lord's Supper. For those of us who properly prepare for and confess it, we receive that gift of his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for life everlasting. Now when most people think about receiving gifts, perhaps their minds turn to their birthdays or possibly to Christmas. And even in the church, we probably think more often about gifts at Christmas time than we do during the Lent or Easter seasons. After all, it was at Christmas that the Lord God sent the gift of His Son. God made man for us, all wrapped up in that squawking package of an infant who was Himself wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. But everything in the church, absolutely everything, is about gifts. Gracious gifts given to undeserving sinners. Jesus' incarnation, you might say, is just the first ribbon on that greatest of all gifts, the one we call salvation. God keeps giving and giving and giving to us throughout history. And this night is no different. Monday, Thursday is about gifts and giving every bit as much as Christmas time is. Now, you wouldn't think that Jesus would be in much of a giving mood on this night, would you? After all, later this night he will be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. In a few short hours, he will suffer the agony and the torment and pour forth sweat like drops of blood over what is to come. He will pray there in the Garden of Gethsemane that these torments and these agonies might pass him by. With all of this going on, how could Jesus possibly think of giving gifts? Jesus knew what was to come, of course. Judas would betray him. After a fleeting moment of bravado in the Garden, each and every one of his disciples would turn tail and run abandoning him to the mob and the soldiers who came to arrest him. And then Peter would deny him three times. Yes, Jesus knew his disciples well. 
and he still knows them, you and me, all too well. Oh yes, he knows you. He knows your thoughts and your plans and your inclinations far more than you want to think about sometimes. At least your failings and your sins, no matter how frequent or how atrocious they might be, they're not going to find their way onto the pages of Holy Scripture, are they? How would you like it if your betrayals were recorded and publicly read over and over, year after year, so that much of humanity knows that you would sell Jesus out? How would you squirm knowing that your denials of him were not only predicted, but would be signaled loudly by a crowing rooster? When you desert Christ because of the pressure of being associated with him being too much for you to handle, to what secret upper room do you flee? Each and every day, with your words and with your actions, you betray, you deny. You abandon this one who has always remained faithful to you and faithful to his Father. As we look at this gospel text from St. Mark's account, our fickleness and our similarity to those twelve disciples becomes quite clear. Jesus tells these disciples that one of them will betray him. What do they say? Surely not I, Lord. Were they simply voicing these concerns in order to receive the assurance that they weren't the individual Jesus was speaking of? Or did each of them know deep down that he, like each and every one of us, really did have it within him to carry out such a barbarous and treacherous act? Peter's rejection, too, of the possibility that he would deny Jesus is similarly selfish. He doesn't pray, Lord, in your mercy, forbid this. But rather, Peter puffs out his chest and he points to his own strength. He would make himself avoid this sin instead of trusting in those words he already knew. Lead us not into temptation. This is often our own response to God's law, too. We don't really want to acknowledge our weaknesses and repent of our sins and admit our guilt. It's far more worldly and sophisticated, isn't it, to deny it, to turn it around somehow, to blame our parents or blame society or blame our boss or put it back on some other group or some event in our past. We see people do it all around us, don't we? And many of those in the public eye have elevated it to a fine art form. But since the fall, this is who we are as human beings. Guilty, but constantly trying to weasel our way out of it. Cockroaches scurrying for cover when the bright light of truth is cast upon us, unblinking. This brings us back to the gifts. Why does God give us gifts at all, especially the incredible gift of His Son? Why would God send His Son into our world and into our flesh to be our Savior? Why would he care? It's a simple answer, really. Since God is pure and loving and generous, it is God's very nature to give. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, put it this way, God created man in order that he might have someone upon whom to bestow his blessings. 
It must be infinitely painful then for our Heavenly Father to see us, His children, denying and refusing those gifts that He would have given us and wants to give us still. What sort of pain must Jesus Himself have felt knowing that a close associate of His would sell His life simply for the price of a crummy piece of real estate? How it must have hurt Him that the one who had seen so many miracles, who had been pulled from drowning in the stormy sea, and had witnessed the glory and the wonder of the transfiguration, would deny even knowing him. That all of his dear friends would desert him and flee. His human nature, united as it was with the all-knowing divine, was undoubtedly in terrible torment as he contemplated all these thoughts. Yet his divine love would not let him leave them in despair. He had to do something to strengthen them in their time of fear and need. And he also gives to us, as we struggle with sin and death each and every day of our lives, we are not left alone to struggle and to fail. We live, of course, in a culture that thinks it is almost possible to solve anything we come across with certain self-help techniques, if only we earnestly and consistently apply them. We're told by numerous books and a plethora of self-proclaimed experts that you can diet or exercise or read or invest or work your way to becoming whatever it is you want, even knocking cancer out of the way along the path. Got a complicated tax return? Just punch a few numbers into our software and it's all done. Want to build your own house or even an airplane? Use our simple-to-follow diagrams. Check yourself out of a store. Pump your own gas. Do your own banking. Given enough time and the right information, it seems, we can deal with almost anything. But where can you turn when you finally confront a challenge that you can't handle on your own? especially one over which you have no control, no influence, no hope at all of working yourself out of. A predicament in which the stakes are not just your health or your wealth or your wisdom, but you're concerned about your very life and that for all of eternity. That's what you face in sin and death. And when you look at it that way, you begin to grasp and to understand a little bit just how wondrous the gift is that Jesus gave to us in his Holy Supper and in his other means of grace. You see, the church cannot comfort a hurting, distressing, despairing sinner with doctrine. We can't use the Bible as a happy pill. You don't just throw some catchy scriptural verses at someone and tell them that all of their problems, present and eternal, will magically go away. We do use the Scriptures, of course, as our source of truth and strength and life, most certainly. But the Bible is not a simply a self-help manual that you can have for plenteous and pious and pleasant living. What makes the difference, then? The difference is Jesus Himself. Jesus does not try to comfort or console or strengthen his disciples that night by giving them pithy sayings or quick answers. He gave them the only things that could ease their pain, heal them, and take away their sin. 
He gave them his word, and he gave them himself. And those two things are really one thing, aren't they? Completely and perfectly aligned. The word made flesh is still the word. The perfect will and truth of God shown to us and given to all the world. What are those words we spoke a short time ago? Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. The Christian faith is not about doctrine or about a document. It's about a person. Jesus of Nazareth, the eternally begotten, spirit-conceived, virgin-born Son of God, a flesh-and-blood God, sent to save you from your sins, to preserve your life. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. This is one of the reasons that Lutherans consider the real presence of Christ and the sacrament to be such an important thing. Our faith is not based on simply remembering and believing that certain events happened so long ago. Faith instead is a reality given to us in the here and now, given and created through the Word alone by Jesus Himself and offered to us in word and sacrament through the Holy Spirit. Probably the clearest place that we see any of this in Scripture is in the words of institution. There, we learn that Jesus' body and blood are given for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Think about those words for just a moment. Jesus gives you Himself. He gives you Himself for the forgiveness of your sins. As you kneel at this rail and you receive His body and His blood under the bread and under the wine, think of all of the blessings that He gives you in that gift. Communion with Christ. Forgiveness of all your sins. Life. Salvation. Communion with the entire Christian church, both in heaven and on earth. In the Lord's Supper, Heaven and earth are joined together as one. And the barrier of the temple curtain between God and man is rent asunder for all time. You become one with God and with all of the saints who have gone before you. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With the apostles and the martyrs, the prophets, and the whole of the heavenly host. These are not just words on a page or words that you mouth. That is your new reality here in time, and there in eternity. How can anyone stay away from such a blessed, wonderful gift? Many people feel that they have to make themselves pure before they come to the Lord's table, before they receive this wonderful communion. But Martin Luther addresses this notion in the large catechism. He writes, Here stand the gracious and lovely words, This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words I have said are not preached to wood or to stone, but to you and me. Otherwise, Christ might as well have just kept quiet and not instituted a sacrament. Ponder then and include yourself personally in the you so that Jesus may not speak to you in vain. In this sacrament, he offers us all the treasure he brought from heaven for us, to which he most graciously invites us in other places, as when he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will refresh you. Surely it is a sin and a shame that, when he tenderly and faithfully summons and exhorts us to our highest and greatest good, we act so distantly toward it, neglecting it so long that we grow cold and callous and lose all desire and love for it. We must never regard the sacrament as a harmful thing from which we should flee, but as a whole, pure, wholesome, soothing medicine which aids and quickens us in both soul and body. For where the soul is healed, the body is benefited also. Our Old Testament lesson told of how after the sacrifice, Moses turned to the people and sprinkled them with the blood of the sacrifice to seal the covenant. It talked about Moses and the leaders of Israel then eating and drinking with God himself. Take comfort that the final sacrifice has already been made once and for all for you on Calvary, and that Christ now offers you his body and his blood to seal you in that covenant of the forgiveness of your sins. Derive great joy also. Not only that you eat and drink in the presence of God as Moses and those elders of Israel did, but also that his presence dwells within you through this eating and this drinking. Here at this altar, we become one with God. Joined to him in the supper, we now join with him on his journey to Calvary, to the tomb, and to heaven itself. Come, you who believe and confess what Jesus has taught. Feast on the body and the blood of our Lord for the forgiveness of your sins, for salvation, and for eternal life. Come to his table. The banquet is ready. In his holy name, amen.